0: This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash
1: party today.
0: I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since. And now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women welcome to the podcast your host victoria moran author of creating a charmed life younger by the day and main street vegan invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body cozy up to your soul and use your unique gifts to change the world now here's victoria in 1989 i was a young widow living with my five-year-old daughter and three cats in a little cabin in the central Missouri Ozarks. I thought that moving to the country would help me heal. Instead, I was so far out of my comfort zone, I wasn't sure I would ever be back. Although I made good friends and I did some good work writing for smallish magazines like East West Journal, Mothering, New Age Journal, Vegetarian Times, Daily Word, And I had an assignment to write a story about women's spirituality and female theologians. As part of my research, publishers sent me books that changed my life. And one of them was the Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels. And today, only 34 years after my first reading of her first book, Elaine Pagels is the remarkable woman whom we'll be getting to know in this hour. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. And what a pleasure to have you here with us. I always get a bit starstruck when I'm talking with someone the first time whose work has impacted my life. So you're getting me on a starstruck day. And those are pretty good days, actually. So let me give our illustrious guest a little bit of introduction and you can certainly find out more about her on your own i'm sure you will want to elaine pagels is a historian of religion she is the harrington spear Payne professor of religion at princeton university and the author of books including the gnostic gospels beyond belief and why religion a memoir that also highlights the title's provocative question Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy. Uh, welcome. I don't even know if I should call you by your first name because oh, I yes, think if you was so luminous. Let's just jump in. Lovely to to have you. And the the kind of religion that you have studied most in your life, although you certainly are very erudite about religions of the world, but certainly it's Christianity, the history of Christianity, the origins of Christianity. And my first question is, are you a Christian? Well, that's an interesting
1: question, Victoria.
0: I mean, yes,
1: in a way, uh, in the sense that I grew up in in traditions that were primarily Christian in California, mostly Protestant. um, And I responded to them in sometimes in powerful ways. But I don't like the designation of being one of this person. One of this group or that group, as if it excluded the others. I also involve, I'm involved with a group of friends in New York. We do the Buddhist prayers every afternoon on Zoom together. I'm in Colorado Mountains, there in Manhattan right now. And I'm not a Buddhist either, but, but it's just that I am fascinated by the study of these traditions, what they have in common, and what they're different um and just because my imagination got captured with them when i least expected it
0: well i relate so much having read your your latest book why religion and and your life and i see so many parallels in in our lives I certainly did not pursue uh, the academic road as as you have but my BA is in comparative religions and I went to school a little bit late I'd been writing since I was 14 and people said oh how wonderful you're going to school so you can finally get a degree in journalism and I said, why would I want to do that? I've been doing that. And I think of that quotation attributed to Einstein. I want to know God's thoughts and <laughs> the rest of the <are laughs> details. So tell us about your story and why, why religion as your wonderful <laughs> book is titled. Yes, well, the, the,
1: title, the title came from, from some attractive man that I met. and And when we were going out, he was a theoretical physicist, and and he said, why religion? I mean, why not something that, that has something to do with the real world? And, and I said to him, well, why do you study elementary particles? I mean, you know, can't see them. I mean, they're invisible. It has nothing to do with what. And we both realized we were trying to understand something fundamental. But also, Victoria, my family was... Not particularly religious, sort of nominally Christian. My mother took me to a Methodist church growing up, which was okay. It was not exciting, but it was, I found it moving in some ways. But I basically was discouraged from religion by my father, who had been in a very ferociously evangelical Calvinist family, and in which most of the world was going to hell. And he really felt that it was mostly fear and uh, invoking fear. And he he gave it all up as soon as he found Darwin and evolution and science, and then he became a scientist. So he said, okay, all that religion stuff is just silly old folk tales, uh, irrelevant. We don't need that anymore. So even though I love poetry and music and dance, I didn't realize how deeply they were embedded in the traditions of of religious traditions, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, Native American, all over the world. Um, I didn't realize that, but I loved certain kinds of poetry that had a certain other dimension to it, you know, a spiritual dimension. And certain kinds of music that did, whether it was Bach or Aretha Franklin, they came right out of the church, you know, both of them. And, and so did so many poets that I love. So I accidentally, I want to say, went to an evangelical revival when I was 14 in San Francisco with some high school friends, and it was Billy Graham preaching. And Thousands of people in a sports stadium. And I didn't know what I was getting into, but it was powerfully moving. It kind of opened up the imagination. It opened me up to a world that was not just a flat earth with scientific explanations, but with mysteries and realities beyond what we know. And it was wonderful for about a year. I was involved with it. And then I had to get out of it, but later realized, wait a minute. There's something powerful about these traditions. It's not about what they believe so much. It's about what people experience and what kinds of
0: experience they open up. So did you decide immediately as an undergraduate that religion was going to be your thing, or did it take a little more evolution? Well, not at all. I was at
1: Stanford, and religion wasn't thought to be a fit subject for study. I mean, you could do anthropology to zoology, right? But there's no religion department. And if you wanted to ask questions about that, um, they would send you to the chaplain, whose name was um, Professor Goodenough. And I decided (laughs) I wasn't interested in talking to the chaplain, so I never went. So I didn't know you could study it. until much later, years later. later, when I was thinking, what am I really curious about? And I wondered what it was that, about that experience with evangelical Christians that had captured me deeply. It also turned me off because of the way it excluded people who weren't part of that group, specifically my Jewish friends, and emphatically so. And as soon as I found that out, I was out of there, so so there were gifts and liabilities to it, but I wanted to understand more, so I decided to go to a graduate school that was secular. I didn't think I'd get bombarded with some kind of dogma and find out how did Christianity start anyway, and so that's what that's that's when I began to do it.
0: And I love it that you did because you've shared so much of that with, with everyone else. And I relate again, when I was in high school, I wasn't very popular. I wasn't very attractive, but the one group that welcomed me with open arms was youth for Christ. And I thought, well, I'm for Christ. I'm this very open-minded person that I had told my Beatles fan club pen pal that I wanted to be a mystic when I grew up about when I started going to these large evangelical gatherings it was very clear that there were certain ways to be correct there were certain ways to be christian and since i was nominally catholic i invited one of my youth for christ friends that i had gone to her church many times i said well you can come to my church this sunday she said no i said well another sunday she said no sunday and that was all she needed to say, because the between the lines was very clear. Whatever you guys are calling it, it's not the right way. of. It's of not really it. Christian. It's not it's like not, us. Yes. In my case, it was it was a friend
1: who had been suddenly killed in an automobile accident. And I went back to my evangelical friends. And I said, my friend was just killed in this awful accident 16 years old and um and they said that's terrible was he born again and I said no he was Jewish and they said well then he's in hell and I felt like I'd been socked in the stomach and I just walked out of there by myself and never went back because I thought whatever you were talking about God's love this isn't that Yes. But they, yeah. did, they did have some of that.
0: Yes. But they had
1: that exclusion
0: that you talk about. Yes. And that yes. was absolute in a way. So tell me what you think, Elaine, about specific individuals, because something that I have long seen in various religious traditions, it almost doesn't matter what it is. There are some people who have that love. And I think of them as the people on the mystical side rather than the letter of the law side. I'm sure you see that. What do you make of it?
1: What I make of it, Victoria, is that many people think of religion as what do you believe? What do Jews believe? What do Muslims believe? What do Buddhists believe? Well, that's a paradigm they get from what Christianity became in the fourth century, 400 years after the death of Jesus. But what you're talking about is what matters to me. It's about, not about what you believe, but how you experience reality. And some of these people are attuned to a kind of spiritual dimension in a way that just radiates from them. And as you said, they can be all kinds of people. They don't have to be explicitly religious either,
0: but many of them are. Yes. Well, someone said to me recently that in an ideal world, the religion would be the flower and the spirituality would be the fragrance. The fragrance always works. The flower sometimes isn't quite <laughs> what it means to be. Yes. I mean, religion has a sort
1: of bad name um, because it's usually associated with institutions mm. that tell you what you're supposed to believe. Yes. so. You know? And I don't have much patience for that either, because right. in that graduate school, I wanted to find out about Jesus. And yeah, first thing I found out is you really can't find out a lot that isn't in the New Testament. And all that is written at least 40, 50, 60, 70 years after the death of Jesus by his followers. There's a lot there. There's a lot we don't know. And then suddenly... They're landed on our head as a group of graduate students. A library of ancient Christian texts that just, they were found in Egypt, but they'd been held by certain scholars who wouldn't let anyone else look at them. A very, you know, spiritual attitude, right? We want to publish this first. And and they are different gospels that most people didn't know. And they speak about the experiential side of this movement, not about belief. And I just love these texts. They are, what the word you're using, mystical texts. Whatever we mean by that, it means something about how we experience ourselves
0: in the world. So tell us what you know that perhaps we all don't know about early Christianity and the the power of that that had to be like the splitting of an atom because we're talking about it 2000 years later
1: it's very strange that we are isn't it i was thinking the stories about zeus we're not talking about them i mean they're pretty interesting but the stories about jesus i've been talking about them much of my life and i think why (laughs) you know what is it about these stories that are so compelling so right now what i'm writing is about how people interpret them the many ways they're told how filmmakers are using them and poets and artists and i think it's because they speak to human experience they're not doctrines they're stories and they're stories that very often Begin in the world we live in, where somebody's sick or blind or in need of something, and they end up with a miracle. They end up in hope. Those are in the gospels. The secret gospels are also wonderful because they open up how to experience oneself to a deeper reality that they say is a potential within us all the time, whether we know it or not.
0: Well, let's start with your first book, The Gnostic Gospels, and tell people who don't know that word, Gnostic Gnosis, what that means and where these Gospels came from.
1: This, as I said, is a discovery that was found in Egypt um, in 1945, but they weren't published till much later, about 51 ancient texts. And they were called Gnostics because they didn't talk much about what do you believe. They didn't talk about faith so much that word isn't there it's about gnosis which means what you know but it's not intellectual knowledge like mathematics or geology it's a different word in greek for knowing which which means do you know that person do you know who you are do you know yourself do you know god so you know it in greek there are two words for knowing one is intellectual and one is heart knowing in french too it's connaître like je, je vous connais right i know you or it's savoir which is head knowledge or it's in german the same thing canon and wissen, or spanish conocer and saber so these languages discriminate this kind of gnosis is about knowledge of the heart and these Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Truth, claim to be the secret teaching of Jesus, which people were supposed to talk about with people who were mature, but not necessarily write down. And what they seem to be is mystical traditions that were known among first century Jews and rabbis, maybe like Rabbi Jesus, because if you read, The Gospels in Greek, as I do, the word for teacher is rabbi. They would have called him that. But he might have known mystical Judaism. Whether he did or not, what you find in the Gospels is about a kind of how the world came into being from divine light that was poured out into the universe. And that within each person, there is a connection Of some kind of divine light within us that connects us with god but we have to look for it it's it's often hidden very deeply and so the gospel of thomas when i first opened it there was a line i loved in which jesus says if you bring forth what is within you what you bring forth will save you if you do not bring forth what is within you What you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I thought, well, you don't have to believe that, but it's true,
0: you know. And I took it psychologically, you know. Because we discover. Help us us understand historically. I think that most people assume that when they hear about the traditional four gospels in, in the New Testament, that those were written by the apostles of those names. But my understanding is that's not really the case. So what about when you get into the Gospel of Thomas? Did Thomas have something to do with that?
1: We don't know who actually wrote any of these, Victoria. You're absolutely right. Because originally, these texts circulated without names, the ones in the New Testament. And then later, when people wanted to tell you, there are many Gospels, not just four. There might be 35, you know. So which ones are authentic? Which ones tell you the truth or the deeper truth? And so people would associate them with disciples because probably these were stories told by disciples. So it's it's not necessarily Matthew is the author of the Gospel of Matthew, but it's the Gospel the way Matthew taught it or the Gospel the way Mary Magdalene taught it or Peter. Could be. Anyway, somebody handed those traditions down. We have lots of them, and the ones that were just found were censored by the church, buried, burned, destroyed, called heresy, that you shouldn't read them. But that word, in Greek, it means choice, and bishops thought choice wasn't too good for people. They wanted to say, no, let me tell you what what you're supposed to believe, right? Don't Don't make a choice, but these texts are about finding your own way.
0: So let me just summarize what I think a lot of people who perhaps are Christian or have looked at Christianity from outside believe about Jesus. And then I want to know from you with your knowledge of these secret gospels as well, what we're missing. So we're looking at someone who was born of a virgin in a stable and, um, made it through childhood. At age 12, he was in the temple, quite precocious. Then he disappears and surfaces at age 30, uh, baptized by his cousin. And then he starts to preach, angers the Roman authorities, is crucified, and on the third day, rises from the dead. Tell me everything I got wrong.
1: Well, I don't know what you got wrong, because how can you verify it? That's tradition. The secret gospel of Thomas, well, first of all, the idea of virgin birth is not in the earliest gospel, which is Mark's. It's not there at all. Um, The only divine birth it talks about is when Jesus is baptized, it says the Holy Spirit comes upon him and charges him with energy. And, And a divine voice says, this is my beloved son. So God sort of speaks. But it's not about a biological anomaly. And in in Orthodox churches, Protestants or Catholics, the Jesus you're talking about is seen as divine being, right? Not a human being, really, but much more than a human being. When I read the Gospel of Mark, it's the earliest one, he's very much a human being. And This man apparently was a village rabbi, a teacher, could have been illiterate. We're not sure he could read, Um, but he got to be known as a healer with divine powers. Some people thought it was demonic power, but he was famous for being able to heal people and proclaiming that God's justice was coming soon and the world was going to change. And it's, it's a powerful story. The secret gospels pick it up and say, well, when he's talking about the transformation of the world, the kingdom of God, he's talking about you discovering something that you don't know about yourself and that I didn't know about myself, which is that you belong to God, that you're children of God, and that this is a reality that transforms the way we understand who we are and how we act. And so it's an interior reality. So there are many. You know, it's like you find collages of many different pictures of Jesus. But that's kind of a nutshell version. It's all it could be.
0: I love all these things you're saying. You take me back to childhood. I remember in Catholic uh, catechism classes. Because I had a very mystical nanny. And she raised me on all kinds of ideas that were not of, of the norm. And I remember that whenever the, the nuns would get on me about something, virgin birth, for example, you know, I put my little hand up and like, Horace and Krishna had virgin births too, you know. (laughs) No, no, can't say that. And and Didi, my wonderful nanny, would say, oh, the nuns mean well, they just don't get out much. And (laughs) so this wonderful kind of exploration. And I think the moment, regardless of tradition that somebody comes from, the moment that you allow yourself to open up to whatever you might find is yes. so liberating. Which sounds like when you decided to go to school and study all this.
1: Yes, and I think that can be found in in many places. I mean, some of the Catholic mystics like John of the Cross, amazing what's going on there. People find it in various ways.
0: Yes. Um, and- I think that perennial philosophy, the Aldous Huxley idea that at the heart of all these traditions is really a very similar message.
1: I think so, and the kind of radiance you talk about, I'd love to know some of the people in whom you see it, but I was recently reading a book called The Book of Joy about the Dalai Lama and his close friendship with Desmond Tutu. Oh, yes. Uh, a beautiful book. And and these, these men laugh a lot, and they're playful, and they're joyful, in spite of the fact that the Dalai Lama has had a very hard life, losing his family, you know, exiled from his country, you know, threatened by the Chinese. When he left Tibet and today, they they claim they're going to name his successor and he'll be somebody acceptable to the communist party these people nevertheless have a sense of a spiritual dimension in life that is that is very deep and that allows them to deal with a great deal of um, challenge and suffering
0: that That's so true. And when you asked about the people that I see, I don't know so much that they're people with famous names. The one I was actually thinking of when we were speaking earlier was an evangelical minister. My daughter is a performer and one of her acting teachers who was a homosexual died of AIDS back in, in the 90s and We went to his huge memorial service at the big evangelical church where uh, he had, had grown up. And this minister said, I have heard some of you say that this man was a sinner. Well, I want to say that we are all sinners. And I want to say that Jesus knows this man's heart. You do not know this man's heart. And I was so relieved because I was worried being there with my daughter and all of her friends that there might be that implication that this wonderful, wonderful person who had taught these kids so much and uplifted them so thoroughly um, might not be in God's favor. And and to hear this gentleman speak as he did just... um, It made me a little bit less judgmental. And then I think, too, sometimes I know you've had this experience. You're sitting around a table. You're out with your friends. Probably in my case, it's usually out with women friends. And I look around and think, what what is this? Some kind of beauty pageant? How, How are all these women so utterly gorgeous? And it's because for that moment, I'm seeing their inner light instead and, of, you know, smudged mascara. Yes, and
1: and Pope Francis also mm. let go of the judgment. I mean, that was a big step for him in that position to do. And, uh, you know, the open-heartedness of it is something very important for so many people, um, not to reject people because of their sexuality or because of their race, Or because of their culture or whatever i mean those people who have that kind of radiance
0: yes um, don't do that (laughs) yes yes what a wonderful word radiance i'm very fond of certain words my favorite word is irrepressible because it means you get (laughs) up again but I'm going to start using radiance more and putting that on some uh, post-it notes because that's a good one to think about. So you have mentioned a few times Mary Magdalene. What a fascinating person. What do you know about her?
1: Well, you know what you would have learned in Catholic tradition, right? That she she was a prostitute um, and, and a repentant sinner. Well, of course, that's not true. I mean, that was created by Pope Leo in the 6th century, made that association there's nothing in the new testament that suggests that mary magdalene was a prostitute she was actually a woman who followed jesus uh, as his disciples did and actually provided for them from um, from her resources which suggests that she had some kind of business as some jewish women did some of them traded a lot of them in um, in fabrics in cottons and linens and so forth and she might have been one of those, but she has had this reputation of being outside of the circle of, of Jesus, really, because there were no women that the Orthodox Church recognizes as disciples. Um, I've just seen a film that you might like. It's called Mary Magdalene. I don't know whether you've heard of it. No. No. It's done by Helen Edmondson, a British screenwriter. I'm going to talk with her tomorrow on Zoom. She's in London, and it's the only film I've ever seen, the only art, Victoria. If you look at Art of Mary Magdalene, doesn't she look either very seductive or very penitent? I mean, she was an opportunity for artists to portray seductive, sexualized women or repentant prostitutes. But this film, Mary Magdalene, made in 2018, doesn't do either one. It sees her as a woman who did not want to engage the only roles available to her in first century Palestine, which is wife and mother, right? And there were no other roles for women, or very few. And in the film, she follows Jesus. And she understands him, she's not his lover, but she's one of the companions and very close to him. It's very powerful and very moving. And the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was censored by the bishops, destroyed, thrown into the river, burned, is, a, is an early gospel, it was translated into many languages from Greek, and now it survives only in, Ethiopic, in Ethiopia where Mary Magdalene is revered as a great saint. And it's in that gospel, Mary Magdalene speaks as one of the primary disciples, very close to Jesus. And Peter gets very angry at her and says, what are you talking? You don't know Jesus. We're his disciples. He would talk to us. He wouldn't be talking to a woman. He wouldn't want us to be listening to you. But in this this gospel, named for her, She has a leading role, and she has visions of Jesus, and she becomes a spokesman of his teachings, and then she goes out and becomes a preacher. Now, that's why the church censored it, because they said, women can't do that. Women are not priests. Women women cannot be any of that, but that's a very ancient tradition, and that's one that's picked up in this new film, and you see it. In the censored gospels it's a whole different aspect of the christian movement that was open to women in a way that we never imagined
0: you're giving us so many amazing tales to pursue and things to think about so i wanted to ask a little bit about you so you have all of this knowledge and all of this wisdom, and you've explored so many of the teachings of Christianity and and other religions. So where does that put you in your life today? Let's um, come to your most recent book, Why Religion, and talk a little bit about your life. Help us know you.
1: Well, I told you how I grew up, and I started to explore these things, and Had a had a wonderful life at the time married to somebody I adored who was this physicist who'd asked me that rude question. (laughs) And we we decided that that was far less important than each other. And we had a child that we adored and then at a certain point, as you know, from the book, and I didn't ever think I'd write about this everything shattered because our child. Died of a very rare illness when he was six, a beautiful child. And um, my husband, a year later, died in a hiking accident, just out of the blue. This wonderful man. We'd been married twenty-two years, and we had just adopted two new babies. One was three months old, and one was a year and a half. And suddenly he he was, he was gone, and our child was gone, and I was left as a widow with these two, babies. Now you said you know what that's like, because something happened to you similarly. So how do you completely put the pieces back together when the whole pattern is shattered? What surprised me, Victoria, is that even us, who probably felt devastated at the time and without any resources, just lost, somehow we find a resilience that's we didn't expect. You can find a new life and other people you love and other children you can nurture and other people you can love, as I said, friends, men, women, whatever. And I was so surprised that that's possible that I wanted to write about it and also how how exploring the stories of religion not the beliefs but the stories because i didn't know what i believed at that time i was like a somebody underwater you know it just was it was a very deep and difficult time but the stories just working with them struggling with them helped me sort my way out of it you know to some extent and then friends helped and Developing some kind of a spiritual life seemed essential. Because how do you not go into despair? How do you not give up? I wanted to know that. (laughs) And I think that whatever we mean by a spiritual dimension is an antidote to that kind of uh, darkness that many people experience and that leads people into deep depression and sometimes into suicide and other unfortunate paths. So I wanted to write about that, especially then to to parents who had lost a child, whose child died, because inevitably, you know, you're a mother. Every parent knows that your job is to take care of your children, keep them alive. And if you fail at that, even if you've tried everything in the universe, you feel like a failure, and there's guilt in that, and it's actually reinforced by biblical stories, which suggest that if somebody dies, somebody did something wrong. So I I wanted to, to write, especially to parents, and say, wait a minute, don't, except the guilt that sometimes comes in the wake of that loss that's not part of it that's some mysterious part of the universe we don't understand I wanted
0: to speak to that and you do it so beautifully I actually have your book as a book Um, actually my husband ordered that one I'm so blessed that I'm Married to this wonderful man today who was a complete atheist when I met him. When (laughs) we were dating, I'd been widowed for nine years and I'd only dated spiritual vegetarians. But (laughs) it, it just didn't seem like it was working with the spiritual vegetarians. So I thought at the time, well, my goodness, you are so old. You're 46. It's not like anybody's going to marry you. So just date somebody who seems nice and interesting. And of course, you know, nice and interesting one out. And he was always very open to the fact that I was talking about God all the time, even though he was an atheist. And lo and behold, in 2019, he had a spiritual experience that he didn't tell me about. He just said, I want to go back to school and study theology. Really, so he ended up at the One Spirit Seminary and has been now ordained as an interfaith minister. So, actually, the hard copy of um, of your book, uh, Why Religion, belongs to him. I have it on uh, on audio, and the way that we actually connected was that the wonderful reader of your audio book uh, <laughs> was a guest on my podcast and I believe you guys do yoga together. She was
1: my yoga teacher. She's a wonderful teacher.
0: Yeah. Ah, that's wonderful. And here I am showing my age that I'm not able to say her name. I can see her face.
1: Eunice Wong. Eunice Wong. Eunice Wong, Wong yes. of course. She has a lovely, She's a lovely voice. Actor, she and, does. But you know it's interesting because you talk about your husband having an experience that that Openness to something unexpected is what often transforms people. You know, not being talked into anything. It's not about believing six impossible things before breakfast. Yeah. Um, it's something happens, and there are people who are open to recognizing that there's more to the universe than we see, yeah. and other people aren't. I love the the book by William James. Do you know it? Varieties of Religious Experience. Yes. Because William James is a psychologist, the brother of Henry James, the writer. And he was brought up Christian, but it wasn't important to him until he went into a deep depression when he was thinking about death and thinking everybody dies. The futility of everything was overwhelming. And he said he, he, he could hardly go on living. When he began to say words like, the Lord is my refuge, he said, I didn't even believe them. I just sort of grabbed onto them like a drowning man in, in water, trying to hold onto some logs, you know. And he said, and gradually it, it brought him out of the depression. And he wrote this book about people having spiritual experiences. Many of them, and many people do, many of them don't talk about them, but those experiences are real, and I love the the literature that talks about them.
0: I do, too. I live on those. I live on uh, serendipities and coincidences (laughs) and things that just seem to uh, cross at at the proper point. So... Elaine, you're, you're so respected in, in the worlds of religion, theology. Tell us about your own spiritual life. Well, I find,
1: I find myself drawn toward certain kinds of music, particularly. I often go to an Episcopal church in Princeton, not because it's an Episcopal church, But because it's a very beautiful church and because the music is wonderful. And importantly, the priest happens to be a man of the spirit. Not all of them are, some are pretty ordinary people. Um, This man is more than that. There's a quality of his understanding that I recognize is trustworthy and deep, you know. But it needn't be that. I'm here in the mountains. And I don't go to the local Episcopal church here. I used to go to the Trappist Monastery, Roman Catholic Monastery. And they knew I was a heretic and a Protestant. But the monks didn't care because they're living on a very different level. These are the monks in the order of Thomas Merton. And um, I learned a great deal from them about silence, being in their chapel, going to them every week. And now when, I, when the, the monastery is closing down, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I'm in the wilderness, living in beautiful Colorado wilderness, about to go visit some friends and see in them the, so much beauty. But also, people who live here typically are in love with the beauty of the world, with the trees and the stars and the skies. And that's another route. Music and being out in nature... So I find various ways and friendships and love because like you, I found love when I didn't expect it again and got remarried six months ago (laughs) So to somebody I'd known years and years ago. I think you may know that, right? Did did Eunice tell? Well, I knew it from
0: your book. (laughs) But I didn't write about it in the book. I knew that you had remarried. Was that not in the book? How did I find that out? That happened afterwards. Oh, okay. That happened. It must have been Google. (laughs) It might have been.
1: It might have been. But it was because somebody was talking about, I was on fresh air with Terry Gross talking about something in the book and somebody I knew from decades ago got in touch with me. Wow. And we just suddenly found each other. So that's amazing, right? That is amazing. At this point in my life, I was really not expecting it.
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. That I mean, and I had thought that you had been married several years ago. So No, it's only last October. Stunning. Well, (laughs) congratulations. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So as you look at life going forward. When we're finished with this earthly life, do you have any conjecture about what comes next? I think
1: about that. I've been writing about the resurrection accounts. I was brought up to be a a rationalist. Say, no, you know, no. I mean, Steve Jobs, who said it, lights out, right? That's what death is, famously. And that's what I assumed. It's just nothing, you know, I don't know but i'm convinced by some experiences i've had that there are more mysteries there than i realized and i'm hoping there's some other kind of reality that we engage um i sense that there is i don't know what it would be there's nothing more mysterious than that what about you
0: it's almost the opposite of of, of what you're saying when I was not quite three, I know that I hadn't turned three because we moved on my third birthday and we were still in our first apartment. My nanny took me out at nighttime. So my parents must have been having an argument or something. I'm not sure why I was out in a stroller after dark, but the sky was full of stars. I was living in Kansas City, not Manhattan, where you don't see a lot of stars. And I remember as this little kid looking up at the stars and thinking, that's home. I'm here now. I'm going to do this thing. There's nothing wrong with it, but it is not home. And in a way, I feel so grateful for that, that understanding that there is more. But in another way, I feel somewhat jealous of people who have the lights out idea because I think they live more fully every day. And I have to remind myself, live fully, live fully, because this day is important. There's a little voice in my head saying, oh, <laughs> you know, you've got eternity. And then I was also raised on reincarnation and all of the kind of Vedantin ideas. So, yeah, that's kind of how I see it. But it's such a wonderful topic because nobody really knows. We can have these wonderful conversations about what some people think they might know.
1: Yes, yes. But I think at least openness to, to not knowing um, is the only way I can look at this. Yes. And, and, and I'm yeah. hoping that there is this other reality yeah. that some people have told me about. And many people say they've experienced as you have in a certain mm-hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. certain quality of experience that goes beyond uh, the rational
0: well I'm going to share with you because I feel like we've spoken for 45 minutes and I feel like I've known you my whole life well I sort of have known you for 34 years (laughs) but um, voice to voice that next week I'm actually taking a tiny little vacation just two nights with a young friend of mine Who knows that I have had on my bucket list for a very long time that I want to go to Lilydale, the spiritualist community in upstate New York? So we'll be there. It's near Buffalo. So it's going to be quite the train ride, but it's been there since the mid 1800s. And a lot of the spiritualist mediums live there on the property all year round, but it's open in the summer as a kind of Chautauqua place. So they have all sorts of fabulous presenters and workshops we're going to be going to a chakra healing workshop but of course we also have appointments with uh, a couple of the mediums and just see what we get (laughs) i'll share that on the podcast after the fact
1: well that's very interesting i'd like to hear that one
0: well it just seems that as long as we're here we may as well look into everything and uh I don't know if Emerson really said this. My my nanny told me that Emerson said it. I know she said it, that um, don't peek. Uh, one day you'll be there and know all about it. So I've kind of carried <laughs> that with me for a very long time. <laughs> Elaine, well, I love what, a, what <laughs> a joy. I'm, it's just, I'm thrilled to death to get to talk with you. And I know that my listeners have gotten so much out of this. So we're going to put, so much about Elaine in the show notes that you can find at victoriamoran.com. We'll have um, a listing of of her wonderful books and how you can get those and how you can find out more about her work. And who knows, if you're young and looking for a major, maybe you'll go to Princeton (laughs) and be able to... uh, (laughs) be taught by this amazing woman. I think well, we've all learned wonderful. today. And I, I think the story about your husband is
1: also quite wonderful. I'm glad to hear that.
0: Ah, well, I'll tell him that. He, he'll be starstruck too, and that'll make two of us. So thank well, you thank so you. much. <laughs> thank you for taking this time and sharing your wisdom. And thanks to everybody for listening. I hope that you're already ordering some of these incredible books And whatever you're doing with yourself right now, just make some room to go out and be remarkable. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy, at mainstreetvegan.com. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm
1: Lisa Campion.